Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Good evening. I trust it's been a beautiful day and that you are settling in well. Tonight, I'd like to continue the talk that Trudy. Well, I'm not sure I'm continuing her talk, but I'm continuing on the same topic that uh, Trudy talked about this morning, uh, the third noble truth. And I'll be talking about different aspects of the, the, uh, the, the freedom about which the Buddha spoke in this third noble truth. So when the Buddha taught, he, when he first taught, he had just awakened uh, completely. His mind was clear and he experienced no obstacles. He was simply experiencing uh, the goodness of who he was as a fully awakened human being. The story goes, however, that it was very difficult for him to, uh, to teach. He was not sure that uh, he would be able to uh, teach in such a way that beings would understand what he had realized. And then after reflection, and as the story goes, talking to the god Sahampati, he decided that he would go out and teach and that he would teach because it was possible that some people would hear and understand and it said that he was reminded that there were people with just a little bit of dust in their eyes who would be from whom the dust would clear when they heard this teaching. So perhaps that includes us. I don't know about you, but my eyes have been feeling pretty dusty lately. And then when he taught, uh, it wasn't about the unconditioned, as you know, or about basic goodness or clarity or great spaciousness or bliss or wonder or openness. But his first, very first teaching, it said that this teaching turned the wheel of Dharma. His very first teaching was about these four noble truths. And as you've gathered from by now, Jack spoke the first night about the first noble truth, the fact of suffering. Leela spoke last night 
about the second um, noble truth, which is that there is a cause, and that cause is the clinging mind. And then he's also taught about the necessity to engage and endure and transform it and be free. The third noble truth, and then he gave teaching on the path to that freedom. And of course, he said, wherever you are, that is the place of practice. So my sister Trudy spoke so eloquently this morning and beautifully about this third noble truth. And she reminded us that the pl- our place of practice is right here, that we, we can be free right where we are in the midst of Whatever is happening, we can let go and find freedom. She said that all experiences can be a Dharma door and that all it, re- all it requires is mindfulness. And of course we saw that uh, with that mindfulness we can create space around our longing and our craving, our aversion, and that who we are doesn't have to ride on those qualities of mind. So I'd like to talk tonight, um, continue to talk tonight about this possibility of freedom. What she quoted from the text is the remainderless fading and vanishing and cessation of clinging. I like to repeat that because I just like that phrase very much as she does too. So this third noble truth essentially says that um, the cessation of suffering is the letting go, the letting go of holding on to ourselves. And by cessation is meant uh, cessation of the resistance, of uh, the resentment, the feeling of being completely trapped and caught by our experience. That sort of trying to uh, maintain this me at any cost. And I just want to remind you of the magic instruction that you've received now from Pat and from Trudy's um, emphasis this morning on it. And I think it's worth repeating even yet again that the golden key is that part of the meditation instructions of of the meditation instructions is where you recognize what's happening and you celebrate that naked awareness that arises, the awakening, the knowing. And in that moment, you let go of all of the mental chatter and the talking and the figuring out and the planning and the, um, the fabrications and the discussions, or as Trudy called it this morning, the, uh, you know, the, the, the 40th download of the uh, story. And what you're left with is sitting with the weather, the external and the internal weather systems, and you're present with them. And it means not resisting and not grasping and not getting caught in hope and fear and good and bad, but actually living, actually living what is here right now.
And that's the essence of this third noble truth. It's the possibility of freedom for every living being. And that includes you and it includes me. It leaves not one being out. And it tells us, it teaches us that the heart can be free in any circumstance. And the texts call this liberation Nibbana. And it's said in the texts, for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done. Just as a rock remains unshaken by the wind, even so the forms and sounds and circumstances of life, neither the desired nor the undesired, cause the heart to waver. For one who has considered all the contrasts on this earth and is no more disturbed by anything whatsoever will become peaceful, free from sorrow, free from fear and longing. This is called nirvana or nibbana. And peacefulness, said the Buddha, is the highest happiness. And if we have any idea about Nibbana or Nirvana, that it's this way or that way, it's probably not it. Because it's not the kind of thing that we come to the end of some long journey, long practice, or by getting to some place. And if you think you have it or you think you know what it is, it's probably not it. Because as long as you think so, you're separate from it. And therefore there's some clinging or grasping there. It's a profound opening in any moment. And it's just being right where we are, believe it or not. It's not in Burma, it's not in Tibet, it's not in Thailand, it's not in Japan, it's not in China, or at the end of a long list of practices. But we can say that it's the end of greed and hatred and delusion, the end of clinging and grasping. And we see the world for what it is, with its pleasure and pain and its gain and loss, its praise and blame, and fame and fall from grace. And these, what we call the worldly winds, appear and disappear. They appear for a time and they change without anyone, any one of us, being able to stop that cycle. And somehow we find some grace we find some composure in seeing, oh, this is how it is. There is no solid self. And seeing that feeling, that feelings change and the body changes, that we grow old, our children grow old, that we die, we lose the people we love, 
And seeing that, we see clinging and identification, and we release it to discover a freedom of heart. So the compelling question of this third noble truth is how do we actually live it? How do we integrate, integrate it? How does our practice manifest in the world? How do we bring the principles of mindfulness and compassion that Jack spoke about into the pain and the neurosis of our lives and transform them? And it's not so much that we um, need to eliminate uh, what the texts call the defilements of mind, greed, hatred, and delusion, or the impurities of mind. But it's, it's a courage that the heart has to open, to remain undefended, and to touch what the Taoists describe as the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life, all the ups and downs. And of course, we touch them from a place of compassion and of equanimity. And it's a kind of fearlessness that requires an unstinting love of the truth and a willingness to live there and act from that place. So first we face our demons, because that they are part of the truth and we see that they are somewhat empty, or I should say completely empty. This is from Marsha Truman Cooper. It's called Fearing Paris. She says, suppose that what you fear could be trapped and held in Paris then you would have the courage to go anywhere else in the world. (laughs) All the directions of the compass open to you, except the degrees east or west of true north that lead to Paris. Still, you wouldn't dare put your toes smack dab on the city limit line. You're not really willing to stand on a mountainside miles away and watch the Paris lights come up at night. Just to be on the safe side, you decide to stay completely out of France. (laughs) But then the danger seems too close even to those boundaries, and you feel the timid part of you covering the whole globe again. You need the kind of friend who learns your secret and says, see Paris first. So this strength of heart is called for in seeing Paris first, in facing the fears that we have, facing this life that we have, just as it is. And because we can face difficulty and actually let go, step beyond our small sense of self and discover our inherent freedom.
And it is inherent. Because if it wasn't, we would not be able to discover it. Alice Walker says, this compassionate, generous life affirming nature of ours is what is called in some traditions, Buddha nature. It is how we innately are. It is too precious to lose, even to disappointment and grief. And so this movement towards freedom, towards our inherent nature, is a natural movement. Thomas Merton says, It is a glorious destiny to be a member of the human race, though it is a race dedicated to many absurdities and one which makes many terrible mistakes. A member of the human race. To think that such a commonplace realization should suddenly seem like news that one holds the winning ticket in a cosmic sweepstakes. I have the immense joy of being a man, he said as if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this. But it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. We are all shining like the sun. And freedom is there in us waiting to be discovered. And yet, all too often, we are limited in our capacity to connect deeply with our humanity. We're limited in our ability to connect with each other, and sometimes even with reality. Our daily lives are tumultuous these days. We are battered by the constant barrage of bad news. We are in overworked and in despair. We work more hours than our bodies and psyches can stand. And we may deceive ourselves sometimes about the possibility and the openings for change and get stuck in postures of despair and cynicism or find ourselves caught in rigid relationships to our lives. And I find that there's a lot of anxiety in the world right now. It feels almost as if with the despoliation of the environment that we're almost on the verge of collapse. And I think that this sense disables us and connects, disconnects us from our own inter- internal sources of wisdom and vision and spaciousness. And so, because the ups and downs in this time in our history can seem to be unbearable, many of us seem to reflexively disconnect from our bodies, from our environments, from our emotional worlds, and from the people around us. And there's a feeling of being incapable 
of connecting intimately. And so we protect ourselves with the armor of anger and denial and self-neglect and abuse, all in an effort to shield ourselves from depression and disenchantment and discouragement because we fear that if we gave it space, it would overwhelm us. And our strategies for coping, much of the time emanates from this kind of, this place of suffering. So it's vital that we really understand the first noble truth, that we really see it, that we see how our own, our own suffering and have some, kind, some internal relationship with that pain. And that pain, of course, has immeasurable impact, not only on ourselves internally, but on the people around us, on the work that we do, and of course, on our own happiness, our own freedom. And so if we're not thinking clearly, if we're only acting out of fear or anger, even if we're working for world peace or for justice, we continue to reproduce the energy and the momentum of destruction. And of course, if we look around the world, we begin to see how individual suffering comes to life in collective forms and how society is a manifestation and projection of our own internal turmoil. So internal hatred leads to violence. Greed leads to unjust economic systems and distrust of others and the construction of individuals as factors of production. And of course, the pervasive delusion in the news media and the advertisements promote a sense of isolation and overconsumption. But there's good news. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way. Because we know that as human beings, we have access to a wellspring of wisdom and goodwill and compassion, just as Thomas Merton says. So this, it's not surprising then that in seeing uh, the, um, the state of the world, the state of our country, that there's a call for liberation not only internally in our Buddhist world, but also externally in the world. Certainly we've seen it in the Middle East and you know, the last century we've seen the movement by Gandhi, the movements by Gandhi and Martin Luther King and um, Nelson Mandela and countless other nameless people who've struggled and even died for freedom. And of course, notably also in Burma by Aung San Suu Kyi. And of course, uh, we struggle with economic and oppressive injustice in our legal systems and our economic systems. We have the highest per capita uh, incarceration rate in the world. 
There are two million people in prison, most of whom are people of color. And we still pay farmers not to grow certain crops. The last statistic that I saw was that there are five million children who go to bed hungry in our own country, not to mention all around the world. So we can't help wanting this suffering human world to at last experience lives of freedom and joy. So we search for what brings the most um, peace, the most self-acceptance and liberation. So the challenge for us is to embody these teachings of freedom, each of us in our own true way, and to understand the connection of our own freedom to that of the world. We are the world. So from this perspective, any move toward freedom in the external world, any desired freedom from external systems of oppression, whether economic, racial, religious, or otherwise, is dynamically related to liberation from our own internal mechanisms of suffering. So how do we begin to find the freedom that allows us to let go? What, lo- what leads to the freedom and the transformation that we want to see in the world? It's paying attention, paying attention, paying attention to what is, accepting it, even as we also need the space for creativity that dreams about what could be. So we are, when we talk about equanimity and looking at what is and accepting what is, we're not talking about indifference. Pope, someone told me in one of my teacher meetings with, with students that um, Pope John said that Buddhists are, the supreme, are supremely indifferent. <laughs> so I, I think that just that's emblematic of the way in which uh, the teachings are misunderstood. That it's not that it's highly misunderstood that when we we teach equanimity and freedom from the conditions of this world, that we are not talking about an indifference to the conditions of the world. We're talking about a complete acceptance of the way things are. We understand that's our starting point. And we also understand that from that, what is called for is appropriate response to the conditions of the world. And so we can still hold a completely prophetic, creative, and large vision of the way things could be. And in that way, not only can we wake up individually, but such awakening holds out the possibility that we can wake up together through our practice. Because we are interconnected and inextricably so. Albert Einstein. A human being is part of the whole, called by us, the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us, 
Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our, uh, our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Striving for such achievement is in itself a part of liberation and a foundation for inner security. So this practice builds a reservoir of spaciousness and equanimity that can provide us with access to our deepest capacities in the midst of great turmoil and difficulty such as we have now. So the key is in the ability to deeply and compassionately connect with our experience. And that connection is in every moment, in any moment, without clinging, without rejecting, and allowing for what is to arise without, and, and be engaged with wisdom, without friction and without resistance. Real and meaningful change in the world can happen only in these places of compassionate and powerful acceptance of the world, just as it is. And we bring a depth of practice. This, this practice that you are doing here for these five precious days helps to deepen your practice, this ability, this, this willingness to to take time out of your very busy lives to understand this, the value of stopping, looking, seeing deeply, falling out of mindfulness again and again and again and again and again, and being willing to come back every time and celebrate that awakeness, that awakening, that awareness, that knowing right where you are, that leads to a depth of practice. And we learn how to hear when we, each time that we uh, don't move exactly right away, as we were talking about this morning with uh, Paula and Trudy, Trudy, as we, even though there may be a, a place in our, in our being that is so habitually conditioned to push away difficult difficult experience, every time we take that one moment before we move, or we take that, we, we look at that itch and we let it be and let it go and we watch its arc and watch its trajectory and allow it to come and go, we're learning to be with our own experience, graciously, spaciously. And we're in that way learning complete connectedness with our whole world in a way that teaches us that we can be allied with each other even across racial, political, and other differences, cultural differences. And through that we, come, we can come to some unity, a unity that is complete connectedness. And what is it called? It's called love. But love with equanimity is more than the expression of deep emotion or the pull to intimacy. It is a love that can become intimate with loss, 
with grief, and it can stand firmly in the fire of conflict, and it can witness suffering without recoiling. It's the kind of love that keeps our senses open and does not shrink from the truth. It is relentlessly inclusive. The Dhammapada, which is a collection of the sayings of the Buddha, in it he says, there are those who discover they can leave behind destructive reactions and become patient as the earth, unmoved by fires of anger or fear, unshaken as a pillar, unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool. So we have cultivated strength and learned a great capacity for equanimity in our practice, even just being willing to be with the smallest discomfort. We're learning as we sit and we walk how all the world arises, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, difficult or neutral. And we sit and body pain arises or emotional pain arises and we include it in our awareness and we include it in our metta. And perhaps bliss arises or pleasant sensations arise and we include that too in our practice. And there's worry and fear and expectation and loss and grief. And there have been many tears shed here this week. And beautiful thoughts. And insights. And we sit in the center of all of that. And we stay there in the midst of it. And discovering this capacity of presence brings stability and ease and spacious balance. And it brings a deep trust. We can trust our lives because we discover our true nature. And through that we are cleansed and we're purified and the knots start to untangle it. Some of you have even reported that some of your physical knots that you thought were intractable are unknotting. So equanimity is a wide lens that allows us to look over things as they are. To see things in a much wider, radiant space of being. And so as, these, as we allow all the forces of life to move through us and gradually to unknot and to be released and to untangle, it comes to an untangling just by the space that's created. And this equanimity encourages intimacy, but it retains discernment. With ease and with care, we find ways to link the powerful urges for freedom inside ourselves with the collective urge for freedom. And it's, a, it's an urge that humanity has always known. It's not new. And we're able to respond appropriately in the present moment 
free from grasping, free from aversion, and free from delusion. And the most important part of that is that it's free from conditions. There are numerous examples of physical and mental and spiritual liberation occurring within the confines of oppressive forms such as prisons or slavery. Aung San Suu Kyi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Viktor Frankl, all of them had profound experiences of awakening while in the confines of prison walls. True freedom is realized when we develop the internal capacity to not be the victim or the captive of any form, any experience, or of any condition. As Trudy said this morning, everything is a Dharma door. And when we align with the natural world, as Jack taught on Wednesday night, with what is of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and fall from fame, with what is we gain power and strength and presence and they enable our actions to be driven by wisdom and compassion rather than by craving and by aversion and by delusion. And that is the definition of liberation, of freedom, the remainderless ceasing and vanishing of the defilements of mind. Let's just sit for a moment. And tonight, as you're sitting, we'd like you to reflect. And I'd like to just say a few words about reflection. That when we, when you're invited to reflect in this context, it's not so much a cognitive reflection. It's not so much a, a thinking through, but actually, to open your heart, to feel even the physical heart, the beating of your heart, to let your attention rest there. And to drop in the word freedom or liberation, whichever one feels right to you, whichever one feels more intimate, 
more possible. And see if you can open your heart so that the reflection comes not so much from thinking in a linear way, but actually allowing the heart to produce for you a memory of a moment of freedom on this retreat. Just that moment when you could let go. There was no clinging. Perhaps that was at a place in the dining room or could have been a moment in meditation moment when you noticed there was a spaciousness, freedom, presence, grace, ease, radiant calm, radiant space, contentment. And is there any part of your life in which clinging has loosened? Perhaps it hasn't disappeared completely, of course. Please feel free to call up any memories of places where clinging has disappeared completely. (laughs) But if there's none that comes to mind right now, I know there are instances in your life But if there are none that come to mind right now, just a place where you notice through your practice and through living fully present that clinging has loosened, that that grip that you used to have is no longer quite as strong. And as you find these moments of freedom or moments of equanimity where you were able to be with 
something that was difficult or painful and not turn away. That you dipped your feet in Paris. Celebrate that. Take it to heart. Feel the feeling of it. Mark it. Thank you for listening. I think I went over the 35-minute mark, so we didn't avoid the sexual fantasies. <laughs> but I, I thank, you for, thank you for your attention. We'll do some walking now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.